Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Section 1 of A Story of the Stone Age. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Story of the Stone Age by H.G. Wells, Section 1 1. Uglomi and Uya This story is of a time beyond the memory of man, before the beginning of history, a time when one might have walked dry-shod from France, as we call it now, to England, and when a broad and sluggish Thames flowed through its marshes to meet its father Rhine flowing through a wide and level country that is underwater in these latter days, and which we know by the name of the North Sea. In that remote age, the valley which runs along the foot of the downs did not exist, and the south of Surrey was a range of hills, fir-clad on the middle slopes, and snow-capped for the better part of the year. The cores of its summits still remain as Leaf Hill and Pitch Hill and Hindhead. On the lower slopes of the range, below the grassy spaces where the wild horses grazed, were forest of yew and sweet chestnut and elm. And the thickets and dark places hid the grizzly bear and the hyena, and the gray apes clambered through the branches. And still lower amidst the woodland and marsh and open grass along the way did this little drama play itself out to the end that I have to tell. Fifty thousand years ago it was, fifty thousand years, if the reckoning of geologists is correct. And in those days the springtime was as joyful as it is now, and sent the blood coursing in just the same fashion. The afternoon sky was blue with piled white clouds sailing through it, and the southwest wind came like a soft caress. The new-come swallows drove to and fro. The reaches of the river were spangled with white ranunculus. The marshy places were starred with ladies' smock, and lit with marshmallow wherever the regiment of the sedges lowered their swords. And the northward-moving hippopotami, shiny black monsters, sporting clumsily, came floundering and blundering through it all, rejoicing dimly and possessed with one clear idea, to splash the river muddy. Up the river, and well inside of the hippopotami, a number of little buff-colored animals dabbled in the water. There was no fear, no rivalry, and no enmity between them and the hippopotami. As the great bulks came crashing through the reeds and smashed the mirror of the water into silvery splashes, these little creatures shouted and gesticulated with glee. It was a sure sign of high spring. Baloo, they cried. Baya, Baloo. They were the children of the menfolk, the smoke of whose encampment rose from the knoll at the river's bend. Wild-eyed youngsters they were, with matted hair and little broad-nosed impish faces, covered, as some children are covered even nowadays, with a delicate down of hair. 
They were narrow in the loins and long in the arms. And their ears had no lobes, and had little pointed tips, a thing that still, in rare instances, survives. Stark naked, vivid little gypsies, as active as monkeys and as full of chatter, though a little wanting in words. Their elders were hidden from the wallowing hippopotami by the crest of the knoll. The human squatting place was a trampled area among the dead brown fronds of royal fern, through which the cross years of this year's growth were unrolling to the light and warmth. The fire was a smoldering heap of char, light gray and black, replenished by the old women from time to time with brown leaves. Most of the men were asleep. They slept sitting with their foreheads on their knees. They had killed that morning a good quarry, enough for all, a deer that had been wounded by hunting dogs, so that there had been no quarreling among them, and some of the women were still gnawing the bones that lay scattered about. Others were making a heap of leaves and sticks to feed Brother Fire when the darkness came again, that he might grow strong and tall therewith, and guard them against the beast. And two were piling flints that they brought, an armful at a time, from the bend of the river where the children were at play. None of these buff-skinned savages were clothed, but some were about their hips rude girdles of adder skin, or crackling undressed hide, from which depended little bags, not made, but torn from the paws of beasts, and carrying the rudely dressed flints that were man's chief weapons and tools. And one woman, the maid of Uya the cunning man, wore a wonderful necklace of perforated fossils, that others had worn before her. Beside some of the sleeping men lay the big antlers of the elk, with the tines chipped to sharp edges, and long sticks hacked at the end with flints into sharp points. There was little else save these things and the smoldering fire to mark these human beings off from the wild animals that ranged the country. But Uya the cunning did not sleep, but sat with a bone in his hand, and scraped busily thereon with a flint, a thing no animal would do. He was the oldest man in the tribe, beetle-browed, pugnacious, lank-armed, he had a beard and his cheeks were hairy, and his chest and arms were black with thick fur. And by virtue both of his strength and cunning, he was master of the tribe, and his share was always the most and the best. Eudena had hidden herself among the alders, because she was afraid of Uya. She was still a girl, and her eyes were bright and her smile pleasant to see. He had given her a piece of the liver, a man's piece, and a wonderful treat for a girl to get. But as she took it, the other woman with the necklace had looked at her, an evil glance, and Uglomi had made a noise in his throat. At that, Uya had looked at him long and steadfastly, and Uglomi's face had fallen. And then Uya had looked at her. She was frightened, and she had stolen away, while the feeding was still going on, and Uya was busy with the marrow of a bone. Afterwards, he had wandered about as if looking for her, and now she crouched among the alders, wondering mightily what Uya might be doing with the flint and the bone. And Uglomi was not to be seen. Presently a squirrel came leaping through the alders, and she lay so quiet the little man was within six feet of her before he saw her. Whereupon he dashed up a stem in a hurry, and began to chatter and scold her. "'What are you doing here?' he asked. "'Away from the other men-beast!' "'Peace,' said Eudena, but he only chattered more and then she began to break off the little black cones to throw at him. He dodged and defied her, and she grew excited and rose up to throw better. And then she saw Uya coming down the knoll. He had seen the movement of her pale arm amidst the thicket. He was very keen-eyed. At that she forgot the squirrel and set off through the alders and reeds as fast as she could go. 
She did not care where she went, so long as she escaped Uya. She splashed nearly knee-deep through a swampy place, and saw in front of her a slope of ferns, growing more slender and green as they passed up out of the light into the shade of the young chestnuts. She was soon amidst the trees, she was very fleet of foot, and she ran on and on until the forest was old and the vales great, and the vines about their stems where the light came were thick as young trees, and the ropes of ivy stout and tight. On she went, and she doubled and doubled again, and then at last lay down amidst some ferns in a hollow place near a thicket, and listened with her heart beating in her ears. She heard footsteps presently rustling among the dead leaves, far off, and they died away, and everything was still again, except the scandalizing of the midges, for the evening was drawing on, and the incessant whisper of the leaves. She laughed silently to think the cunning Ouya should go by her. She was not frightened. Sometimes, playing with the other girls and lads, she had fled into the wood, though never so far as this. It was pleasant to be hidden and alone. She lay a long time there, glad of her escape, and then she sat up, listening. It was a rapid pattering, growing louder and coming towards her, and in a little while she could hear grunting noises and the snapping of twigs. It was a drove of a lean, grisly wild swine. She turned about her, for a boar is an ill fellow to pass too closely, on account of the sideway slash of his tusks, and she made off slantingly through the trees. But the patter came nearer. They were not feeding as they wandered, but going fast, or else they would not overtake her and she caught the limb of a tree, swung onto it, and ran up the stem with something of the agility of a monkey. 